Morning, Bethel. We are continuing this morning in this summer series, um, Summer in the Psalms, for the fight of faith. And this morning we come to Psalm 100, and we're going to fight back our grumbling and complaining by faith in the grace of God. So um, you can turn to Psalm 100. We'll be reading that in just a minute. Um, but we've looked at a lot of different um, issues, sins in our own lives that uh, we can only battle by God's grace, by faith in that grace that's ours. So we've dealt with guilt um, in Psalm 32 and anger in Psalm 37, depression um, that can get turned to joy and praise in uh, Psalm 42, 43, fear, and then envy last week. So this morning it's grumbling. Uh, there's two more weeks left in this series after this morning. Um, so let's dive in to Psalm 100 and consider grumbling and faith. Before I read Psalm 100, um, I just want to say one thing. Um, I'm going to read Yahweh for the Lord, capital letters, L-O-R-D. Um, I've mentioned this before, but I think it bears repeating. Uh, just because we're so familiar maybe with Lord, 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 capital L-O-R-D. Um, so listen to this uh, quote by Alec Motier, and then you'll understand why I uh, read it this way in Psalm 100. The divine name Yahweh will at first sound strange in your ears, being used to the established but mistaken English convention of representing the name as the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. It means something when a senior friend says, please call me by my first name. The relationship has ripened into a new intimacy and privilege. So it was in Genesis 4.26 when people began to call their God by his personal name. That's the first time L-O-R-D, capital Yahweh, shows up in the Bible. Um, so it was even more when the significance of that name was revealed to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. A totally false sense of reverence later said, the name is too holy for us to use, and the custom was introduced of representing it as those four uppercase letters. No, he says, he has granted us the privilege and we should learn to live in the benefit of it. Hebrew has two main nouns for God, Elohim and El, but there's only one name. God is what he is. Yahweh is who he is. Okay? So uh, he wants us to know his name, which is really wonderful. He draws us into this intimate relationship. So if you're not there already, it's page 500 in the Pew Bible. I'll read Psalm 100, and then uh, we'll dive in. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to Yahweh, all the earth, Serve Yahweh with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that Yahweh, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For Yahweh is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. You've stood. Okay. <laughs> you can be seated. All right. 
So this morning the title is Grumbling in Faith, and I know that there's no grumbling in this passage. Um, the psalm is full of grumbling's opposite, thanksgiving and praise. So unfortunately, our lives are often full of grumbling, right? That's why we need this psalm and why we need to fight the good fight of the faith to root out our grumbling and sow grace that will reap gratitude and praise. So I probably don't have to tell you this, but we are pretty good at grumbling. Uh, comes pretty naturally. Uh, it's so prevalent that you'd think that we actually like it and benefit from it somehow. But we don't, right? I mean, it's not just out there. It's also in here. Negativity, negativity, negativity. We often live the anti-Psalm 100. It can almost become like the soundtrack of our lives. And what we need to do, what we need to begin with, is to just cut the anti-Psalm 100 soundtrack. So what does that sound like? What does that soundtrack sound like? Um, well, here's a little of what it can sound like. See if you resonate with this. Um, little uh, s- uh, satirical piece by a professor of psychology at Zayed University in, in the United Arab, Arab Emirates. His name's Justin Thomas. So he wrote this little satirical thing saying, seven tips for always looking on the bleak side of life. Um, I'll read five of them. One, Ruminate. One of the easiest ways to prolong and intensify any negative mood is to ruminate. This involves repeatedly reminding yourself. If you want to, you know, I could always send these to you later if you need, you know, if you're feverishly taking notes because you're so helped by this. Um, This involves repeatedly reminding yourself how bad you feel, how you're not the person you used to be, and how nothing ever seems to go right. It's important not to allow your rumination to turn into problem solving. Don't analyze the situation for solutions. Simply allow yourself to mindlessly brood about your misfortune and its negative implications. Second, upward social comparisons. Another route to lasting unhappiness is to habitually compare yourself to people you consider superior or more fortunate. Third, overgeneralization. When something upsets you, overgeneralization can help you make it much worse. For example, if an acquaintance fails to return a greeting... Don't simply think that they dislike you. Overgeneralize this, or, I mean, well, okay. I'll just stick with his words. Overgeneralize this thought to, nobody likes me. Overgeneralization leads to mood amplification and can really help you turn neutral situations into bad ones and make bad ones much worse. Fourth, external attributions for positive events. Whenever anything good happens, you should always attribute the positive experience to some quality or deficiency in another person. For example, if you get an A in an exam, try to think about how the examiner has probably made a mistake grading the paper or intentionally made the exam easy. If you receive a compliment, you should train your mind to think this person obviously has bad taste, poor eyesight, or an ulterior motive. And then finally, number five, catastrophize. When it looks as if bad things might happen, or even if there's just some remote chance things could go slightly wrong, always try to visualize the worst possible outcome. Accept this as a thing likely to happen. People who master this technique are able to live in a perpetual state of fear and anxiety. You're welcome. So, 
Isn't it crazy that we often don't want to fight our negativity? We give in to it, we stay miserable, we yield to our selfish, crazy hearts. We let our feelings rule us. We allow ourselves to be led around by our nose. Even browbeaten, in a sense, by misperception of reality. Sometimes I think it's because we don't want to let go of our grievances. We're very reluctant to reorient to a greater perspective. We don't want to be grateful and happy. Then, who's going to notice the pain we've been through? We won't get any pity. We won't get any credit. Others might think it's been easy. Have you ever seen this in yourself? I've seen this in myself. Sometimes I don't want to be thankful. I want to hold on to my complaints. <laughs> you know, like, you know, maybe it hits you. You know you shouldn't be grumpy or cranky or irritable or whatever. You know you should be thankful but you're not, and you don't want to be. (laughs) I I stopped and thought. I remember one day just getting home, like, the last thing my family needs is for me to come in cranky, you know, irritable, sitting in the car just, like, fighting my own heart to be grateful. I'm like, why is this so hard? Is it that I want to be sure my grievance is filed? Or, this is one that I thought of, am am I like an employee who doesn't want his boss to think his work is too easy lest he pile more on? Is that how I'm relating to God? Or, Or maybe, you know, in relation to others, whether it's your family or friends or whatever, am I like a husband who doesn't want to do too much too gladly lest his wife expect more of him? Is that what's going on in my heart? Again, not that Beth is like that. She's wonderful, but what reason is there for hanging on to my complaints or my moodiness, self-pity or huff? Like, what is it for you? I mean, this stuff is just pervasive. Like, let's just kick up some more of it here so that you remember how prevalent this is. I mean, let's say it's your birthday. Has this ever happened? Or some other occasion or something you feel your friends or your spouse hasn't been very thoughtful, or they got you something and they should have known better than to get that for you, or the one thing that you did want, they seem to miss all the hints. I mean, it's just so easy for us, petty things, to stew and brood and wallow. So I think we should just recognize the fact that we are always going to find something to complain about. (laughs) And grumbling and complaining is not a trite matter. You remember how seriously God took the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness? This was a big issue. He had miraculously delivered them, ten crazy miraculous plagues, protecting them in Goshen, pillar of cloud and fire leading them out, Red Sea parted, Pharaoh's army wiped out. I mean, all this just miraculous provision. They get into the wilderness a few days. They run out of water, and they're grumbling. They find water, and rather than, you know, and it's bitter, it's, it's not drinkable, rather than praying, they're grumbling. 
God provides again, made the water drinkable, brought them to an oasis, provides manna. They move on. They can't find water again. They don't pray. They grumble. Exodus 17, 3, but the, first, the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of, up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So really, they're angry with God. They're grumbling against God, but they find some human targets. We do the same thing. We will always find a reason to grumble and complain if we're looking for it. Don't you want to cut that soundtrack? Do you enjoy it when others around you are playing that song? No. Grumbling is Satan's soundtrack. He loves to get that song stuck in your head. You know those like one-hit wonders from the 80s? You wake up in the morning and it's like, bam, you can't get... Like that's how he wants it to get stuck in your head. Grumbling, complaining, negativity, moodiness, irritability. Do you like this in you? (laughs) Don't you want to make war on it? Well, that's what we're here for this morning here, to make some war on negativity and grumbling and complaint. I say we give negativity some bad press this morning. Amen? Anybody? But not just that. Let's not just give it bad press. We need to repent of our grumbling and complaining. It is sin. Philippians 2.14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. So repenting is owning it, calling it what it is, not justifying it, not rationalizing it away, blame shifting, but owning it and turning from it to Jesus. It's not explaining it away. If, if, your, sin can be, if your sin can be explained away, you don't need to repent of it, right? So repentance is this humble move to kill our unbelief and sin. It humbly admits our, our need, our desperate need for forgiveness and grace. And God gives grace to the humble. Repentance is like opening up the spigot of God's blessing into our lives. So we've been pumping this book, Don't Follow Your Heart. We have, I think, a few more copies left at the uh, welcome desk if you want one afterwards. Um, it is really good. And so listen to what John Bloom says about Grumbling. He says, I am a grumbler by fallen nature. Fallen in parentheses, by nature. The matter is that I too easily listen to the lies of my pathologically selfish sin nature, which assumes all of reality should serve my preferences and grumbles anything that doesn't. The truth is when I grumble, I've lost touch with reality. Grumbling is a gauge of the human soul. It gauges our gaze on grace. It tells us that we're not seeing grace. Grumbling pours out of our soul whenever we feel like we're not getting what we deserve. Grumbling is a symptom of a myopic soul. Selfishness has caused tunnel vision and has fixated on a craving. The soul has lost sight of the glory and wonder and splendor and hope that is the reborn, redeemed life, and thus it is far too easily displeased. Grumbling is evidence of soul vision impairment. The opposite of grumbling is gratitude, and gratitude also gauges our gaze on grace. It tells us that we are seeing grace. Gratitude pours out of our souls whenever we're receiving a gift we know we don't deserve, and we experience a humble happiness. Isn't that a great description of gratitude? And as sinners who have received the gospel of the grace of God, we are receiving these gifts all the time. 
Gratitude is a symptom of a healthy, expansive soul. The gospel of grace has given it a panoramic vision rather than myopic panoramic vision, allowing it to see that this grace will be sufficient to meet every need when inconvenience, crisis, weakness, affliction, unexpected demand, suffering, and persecution hit. Gratitude is the accent of the language of heaven because there everything is undeserved grace. No creature that basks in the eternal, deep, powerful, satisfying, overflowing joys of heaven will have merited being there. But grumbling is the accent of hell's language because it's how a creature's pride responds to the creator's decision to do or to allow something that the creature does not desire. Grumbling scorns God because it elevates our desires and judgments above his. And that's why Paul tells us to do all things without grumbling. The children of God should not speak with the accent of hell. Gospel gratitude is a foreign language here in the world. We are citizens of a better country. It's a good word. So we need to fight. We need to, we need a lot of grace for this. We need to lay hold of that grace by faith. And a lot of that grace is available to us right here in Psalm 100. So let's look at it. First off, we realize we need to know something. We need to know the gospel. So just let me orient you to the psalm. There's a couple commands in verses 1 and 2. This is how we ought to respond And the power to respond that way, the reasons why, how we can respond that way, is found in verse 3. And then again, there's command in verse 4. Give thanks, bless his name, and then why in verse 5. So what we're going to do is actually focus on verse 3 and 5, and then we'll look at verses 1, 2, and 4. So we'll look at the grace in verse 3, and then the grace in verse 5. And then, hopefully, we'll have the reasons to respond to those commands in verses 1, 2, and 4. Does that make sense? that make sense? <laughs> okay, great. So, we need to know something. We need to believe something. So, we need to know the gospel. <clears throat> this is point number 2, verse 3. Know that Yahweh, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So, Know the gospel, point number two. You might be tempted to dismiss this. Oh, so I just need to know something. Well, when I'm feeling like this, I, don't, I can't just turn it on and off like a light switch. But do you realize that there are arguments, there are things that you believe are true underneath your grumbling? Things like, I deserve better than this. That's an argument. That's something you're believing. I can't believe this happened. Why? What, what is it that you believe underneath that that's making you so upset? Why can't something go right for a change? That's something you're believing underneath that grumbling and complaint. So what statements of belief are going to be laid as the foundation for your day? This is a daily battle, right? So certain things are the things that we are going to live our days on. What's that truth going to be? Is it, I deserve this, this, and this? Or is it going to be, Yahweh is God. And he made me, and I'm his. I'm part of his people. I'm one of the sheep of his pasture. 
Or is it going to be people are idiots, <laughs> you know, driving to work? Why can't I have? And the stuff that basically says God doesn't know what he's doing, or he, he just must not care. So what do we need to know? We need to know that Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. See, his name is so important because this is who he is. There's a God. A lot of people, oh, yeah, I guess I believe in God. There's probably a God, but I don't know what he's like or who knows. Well, we know what he's like. He's Yahweh. He revealed himself. And when he revealed himself, what does he say? Well, the greatest unpacking of his name when he is disclosing who he is as Yahweh is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Moses said, show me your glory. And he says, well, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and you can see, you know, kind of the afterburner effects, you know, like you can't see me and live. And as he passes by, he declares his name. He says, the Lord, Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That's who God is. The God is Yahweh God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's the one who made you. He's the one who sustains you. He's the one who decides if you breathe another breath, if your heart keeps beating through the rest of this day. So that's really good news, that our lives are in the hands of that God and not some capricious, moody, you know, Jekyll and Hyde God. No, the, the reality behind this universe, the ultimate reality behind this universe is good and merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's really good news for sheep like us who have all gone astray. We've all said, I, you know, I better be, I'd be better off on my own. Thank you very much. Like, that doesn't go well for a sheep. Like, how foolish and damnable to tell this shepherd to shove off. We'd be better off on our own. So, listen, if we're going to actually be grateful, like those who've been forgiven much, love much, those who've been forgiven much, are thankful. But if, if you're kind of like dull to the sinfulness of your sin, you're not going to be real happy about God's grace and salvation. So I think sometimes we need help with the sinfulness of sin. And I recently read this little illustration by David Platt in this little booklet, Follow Me. There's a book-length version, but this is a little booklet. So he says, the penalty for sin is not determined by our measure of it. Instead, the penalty for sin is determined by the magnitude of the one sinned against. So here's the story. Azim, an Arab follower of Jesus and a friend of mine, was talking recently with a taxi driver in his country. The driver believed that he would pay for his sin for a little while in hell, but then he would surely go to heaven after that. After all, he hadn't done too many bad things. So Azim said to him, if I slapped you in the face, what would you do to me? The driver replied, I'd throw you out of my taxi. If I went up to a random guy on the street and slapped him in the face, what would he do to me? He'd probably call his friends and beat you up. What if I went up to a policeman and slapped him in the face? What would he do to me? You'd be beat up for sure and then thrown into jail. 
And what if I went to the king of this country and slapped him in the face? What would happen to me then? The driver looked at Azim and awkwardly laughed. He told Azim, you would die. The driver got Azim's point and realized that he had been severely underestimating the seriousness of his sin against God. The wages of our sin is death. We deserve eternal destruction. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord laid our iniquity on the Lamb of God, slain in our place to take away our sins. Rather than us paying for our damnable rebellion, Jesus was damned in our place, in your place. If you are trusting Jesus as your Savior, Jesus was damned in your place. He took hell for you. Otherwise, if you're not trusting in him this morning, you're on your own with that damnable rebellion. That's a scary place. And I offer Jesus to you this morning and plead with you to turn from your sin and trust in him. And if you have questions and want to talk to somebody, I'd be happy to afterwards. So not only are we God's, Yahweh's, by creation rights, because he's made all of us, he's made all things, we are also his by redemption rights. Do you see that? Know that Yahweh, he is God. It is he who made us. He owns us. We are accountable to him. We belong to him. But we are his is actually good news. We're his people. He, he died to win us. He died to purchase us, to deliver us from the slavery of our sin, out of the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. That, so that ownership, it doesn't mean chains and heavy burdens. It means provision, protection, covenantal commitment. So this is a privileged position, this ownership. It's like, there's lots of passages along these lines, but think of Isaiah 43.1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That's really good news. Or John 10, my sheep hear my voice. We belong to him. He's our shepherd, our good shepherd. And I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Think of all the blessings and privilege here. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We're safe. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So we are his people. He's our shepherd. We are his sheep. We're safe. We'll be provided for. We'll be protected. Psalm 23-like promises. If God is for us, who can be against us? We need to know that. Really know that on a daily basis. What if that was what the day was built on? Don't you think gratitude, praise would flow from that? Not running around like cosmic orphans trying to appease some karma god. Karma's not God. Yahweh's God. So the issue is the functional beliefs. So if we are grumbly and moody and irritable and complaining, we need to stop, cut the soundtrack. Like, what am I believing down here? 
dig it out, throw it away, and seed these gospel truths down at the roots, and then the praise and the thanksgiving will come. So we need to know the gospel. We also need to remember the gospel. Look at verse 5. So what should we do when we enter into the presence of this God? Should we cower? Should we wince? Should we, you know, dig our heels in and stay outside? Should we feel unworthy to approach? No. Look at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Because, here's this gospel reminder, because Yahweh's good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness endures to all generations. So the psalmist doesn't say, give thanks and praise him because I said so. It's also not some kind of cheery, cheesy, you know, hey, always look on the bright side of life, you know, sort of thing. No, life is hard. It's not just our sin that gets in the way of gratitude and praise. It's the hardness of life and the brokenness and the pain and the sorrow, too. This is not cheesy, like, it's left to you to kind of screw it up from inside, you know, kind of work it up, power positive thinking, you know. No, it's because of something. We can give thanks and bless his name because he's good. His love is wonderfully stubborn, steadfast love. He is perfectly faithful. There are reasons to give thanks and bless his name. So steadfast love and faithfulness, it's not fleeting. It's forever. You see it? It endures forever. You can always bank on it. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Lamentations 3, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So if you believe that, if you grab a hold of that on a given day, if you grab hold of that, if you believe those truths, if you know the gospel, if you remember the gospel, then we can sing along with a new soundtrack. We can create a new soundtrack. We can sing along with Psalm 100. So this is a psalm for giving thanks. It's what it's for. See it there in the superscription up at the top, little title. Verse number one, make a joyful noise to, the, to Yahweh, all the, all the earth. This is not a joke. Let me just say this. Sometimes this is kind of jokingly referred to. Um, well, you know, they make a joyful noise. It's kind of like for people that can't carry a tune in a bucket. Um, okay, haha. But like, this is about giving glad homage to a great king. It's actually a serious thing. Make a joyful noise to Yahweh, all the earth. He's the king of all the earth. So this is what you say. In the, you can say this. You can make a joyful noise even in the face of death and suffering and loss because our God reigns, because he gets the last word. He wins. If he's for us, no one can be against us. He is the victorious warrior, God. So we can make a joyful noise to him no matter what. Serve or worship Yahweh with gladness. Vertically, it's worship. Horizontally, it's service. With gladness, not with a sour spirit, not, you know, with this. Come into his presence with singing. Where's the power for that? 
It's verse 3 and verse 5. That's where it comes from. Knowing the gospel, reminding yourself of the gospel. Commentator Derek Kidner notes that this gladness in singing these words repeatedly convey the thrill of liberation. They're terms tied to deliverance. Again, it's all about the gospel. It's the gospel deliverance that fills us with joy and thanksgiving. Verse 4, enter his courts, his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. So again, Yahweh's gates, the place of his presence, they are shut to the unclean. And that's what we are, naturally. So how in the world can we dwell in his presence, in his courts? How can we enter at all? Only because Jesus made a way for us. Again, it's the gospel that empowers this kind of praise that makes it possible for us to approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and grace to help us in our needs so that we can give thanks in all circumstances so that we can praise his name and serve him with gladness. So no wonder Paul writes in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It all comes through him. Every good gift is a gift from him, a blood-bought, gospel, gracious gift. So John Calvin wrote, the church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. But then, two, this is encouraging, unhappy people may sing to cheer themselves up. That's why we come I needed it this morning. I still need it, but I needed it this morning. I need reoriented. I need to make sure that my life is built on what's really true. I need to know the gospel, remember the gospel. If you're in Christ, you're not going to hell anymore. <laughs> I mean, aside from the fact that we quote-unquote, won the lottery, and we live in the West, and we've got, like, indoor plumbing and safe water, and, like, on, 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 like, no matter what's going on in your life, like, let's just set that aside. You're not going to hell anymore. And not just that, you're not going to live in some kind of, you know, like, just kind of neutral existence. You're going to, you're going to go to heaven. Actually, heaven's coming down. New heavens and a new earth new resurrected bodies, and we're going to see God face to face, and there's going to be fullness of joy forever. Nobody's going to take that away. That's yours. If you're in Christ, that's yours. All things are yours. Paul says crazy things like that. So we need to know this song by heart. We need to sing it to each other. We need to sing it together. That's why we come together like this and make the gospel the soundtrack for our lives. So let me close with a quote I love. I've, it's probably been a couple years since I've quoted it, so it's about time. Um, C.S. Lewis has this great little thing, little essay called A Word About Praising. And think about it now in the light of what we've considered here. I'm going to close with this. We're going to sing a song, then we'll have a little time for community discussion, testimonies. Um, so when he first in his words, started to draw near to faith in God. He was an atheist. He's teaching the Bible as literature as part of his curriculum at uh, Oxford, Cambridge, you know, um, in the 1950s or so. 
Um, and so it really bothered him in the Psalms where God is commanding people to praise him. So he's thinking, what's up with this? Some kind of celestial egomaniac that just creates people to tell him how great he is. He says, the miserable idea that God should in any sense need or crave for our worship like a vain woman wanting compliments or a vain author presenting his new books to people who never met or heard of him. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I have never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Readers praising their favorite writer, players praising their favorite game, or fans praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, cars, children, flowers. We could add TV shows, movies, food, etc. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Praise, I love this, almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed that either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? You got to see this, you know, something like that. So the psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. What we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing with everything else we value. The worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. If it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate, that is to love and delight in the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude, fullness of joy forever. And he says, it's along these lines that I understand heaven. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And then he gets realistic and says, but we're still tuning our instruments, and it's a struggle. But we dig in the desert so that we are ready for the streams of water to come. So it's a fight of faith to believe the gospel so that we can drink the living water and give thanks and bless his name. Isn't that amazing that the reality at the source, center, foundation behind this universe has wired the world in such a way that his glory and your greatest joy are one and the same thing. We need to fight to believe that. Let's pray. Dear Father, you are so good and you are Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You have 
displayed yourself most fully and finally and wonderfully at the cross. Our Lord Jesus pouring himself out for us, full of grace and truth, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Help us to see it. Help us to know it. Help us to remember it and believe it so that we become a conspicuously new and different peculiar people who are able to give thanks in all circumstances and sing a joyful noise to you because you are a great God. In Jesus' name, amen.